Hey friends, welcome to When Songs Mean Business. I'm your host, Steph Belcher. Today I'm chatting with Chloe Churko, a business manager, bookkeeper, and studio executive from Las Vegas. Chloe and I dive into a bunch of really interesting business management topics in this episode, and Chloe gives independent musicians, especially producers and songwriters, some really great advice regarding licensing deals, checking up on your publishing royalties, and how to make sure that you're actually collecting all the money you're owed. And near the end, we share some thoughts on cryptocurrency and how the blockchain can help musicians. I hope you enjoy this episode. If you want to share feedback with me, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If this is valuable to you, please share and tag me on Instagram. I love to hear from you at When Songs Mean Business. And if you want more personalized business advice, join us on January 24th for a five-day virtual business boot camp called Level Up Your Business. We're going to chat about what's been working for us lately, what kinds of roadblocks we're coming up to, and how we can move forward as a community into 2022. We're going to set some goals and do some networking and get ready to make some big changes to our careers. Sign up at stephbelcher.com slash level up, and I can't wait to see your beautiful faces on Zoom. Huge thank you to Chloe Churko for joining me today, and as always, thank you so much for listening. Let's dive into When Songs Mean Business. Chloe, hello. Hi. It's so nice to chat with you. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. It's been a long time coming. I feel like we've talked about this so much about your like podcasts and chatting and interviewing and whatever. So I'm happy to be here. Yeah, yeah. You've been kind of along this whole journey with me since I joined the um, Girls Behind the Rock Show Facebook group. And I started to try to search out other people that were interested in like the music and money and where it met. And I, you were probably one of the first people to respond when I first started posting about that. There's not a lot of us that do the money side of it. So we find each other quick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is so true. I keep finding there's two other people in Michigan. And every time I find somebody new, I'm like, yes, yeah. I, one of us, one of us. Yeah. <laughs> so these interviews have been really fun and I'm super excited to chat with you. This is exciting because I feel like I know you, but I don't know a lot about you. So I would love for you to kind of start at the beginning of your musical journey, wherever you think that is, and just kind of tell me about how you got started in this business and, and in the musical world. Well, on a cold wintry night, I was born. <laughs> no, um, I mean, yes and no. I, I was, as we, we've just chatted a little bit, I was born, I was born into the music industry. No, I, I was a late bloomer to music. I come from a musical family. My dad is a music producer. My brother is a music producer in more in rock and metal. I produced Five Finger Death Punch, Disturbed, Ozzy Osbourne, heavier in the metal or in the rock genre. My brother was always into it. I wasn't. I, and I'm, six years younger than him. So my brother and my dad worked side by side for a long time. And I just did other stuff. I worked in retail for a long time. I was retail manager. I just did other things. I went I kind of dabbled in random school. I went down a couple of different pathways. I went to EMT school. I went to, I, I kind of, it took me a while to find where I should be. And here I am now in music, which is probably where I should have been the whole time. But 
I'd moved to Canada as an adult and I was working as a TSA security officer <laughs> at the airport <laughs> and I just didn't want to do it anymore. And my dad had just started his first studio here in Las Vegas and he needed some help running it and just some admin and really interning. I mean, I basically interned, I was scrubbing toilets and like I, there was nothing handed to me when it came to that, <laughs> but I came back to Vegas to help him at, with the studio. And that's kind of where it started. I started, like I said, basically as an, in, as a studio manager intern, it was a lot smaller of a studio as a private studio is 1500 square feet. So I just, you know, handled emails, answered the phones, scrubbed the toilets, ordered supplies, kept stuff stocked for everyone, made sure everyone was happy. I always say, people say like, what do you do? I say, I allow creators to make music. I make mm. sure that their life is in order and their things are in order. And at the time was simple as coffee to, so that they could make music. As we grew and as my dad became more successful, we bought a 14,000 square foot studio in Las Vegas. Wow. And I jumped from being studio intern to studio manager of operations <laughs> and <laughs> started running that studio, which got me into everything, invoicing, accounts payable, accounts receivable, client relations more, not just answering a phone saying we're a private studio. We don't sell studio time. I was selling studio time. We have basically a commercial side of the studio and a private side of the studio. So my brother and my dad are the private side. And then the commercial side is all the clients in between. I started doing the books. We're a family business. We don't hire a lot of people. So it was like, how much can you do and just keep doing it? So, you know, I started doing the bookkeeping and I started doing you know, eventually we started doing payroll and we set up 401k plans. And I just started to see how all of those things worked. I have really amazing accountants who trained me in most of what I know. And I'm so grateful because it was, you know, better than going to school for four or five years to do this. They taught me everything in like six months and were just kind of pounded it into my brain. And then with that, the studio became bigger and badder, meaning more badass. Yeah. Um, and you know, it was, I was doing more for my dad. So I also manage him now officially. I managed him for about four years. So that's a full-time job in itself. I've been working with my brother a little more. Uh, I go to school full-time. <laughs> I'm in the middle wow. of almost finished school full-time. So I hired a studio manager. Now I don't really oversee the studio, but with that kind of free time, I started Pink Noise, which is my main, my main hustle right now. And which is a business management firm. And I do that now for people outside of my family. I have clients all over the place from everywhere and all different parts of the music industry. And, and I, that's what I love. And that's what I ultimately want to do. I still oversee the studio and obviously I'll still manage my dad probably for the rest of time, but, but the music business management is where, where, where I shine. <laughs> I love it. So talk to me a little bit about business management and what that means in your day-to-day? -day. I still say, even though I came from, you know, managing a studio and making sure artists could create music, I still say that's what I do. I make sure the artists can create music in the end. That's my ultimate job. You know, obviously it's a lot more complicated than that, but I like to alleviate the stress of all of the things relating to money, whether it's tracking all the income, tracking all the expenses, paying people. You know, I do a lot of like royalty checks where I'll check statements and make sure they're getting paid properly or chasing checks because they're not getting paid at all. And I have to, you know, send emails saying, hey, where's my statement and our check for this? I try to for most musicians and most creatives, I find that's where they really struggle. It's hard to get a handle on that. And so I, I really try 
to do that for them or educate them to do it for themselves if they want. Some people just want me to do it. Some people want to learn how to, you know, it's the boring stuff from the checks and balances and, you know, helping with the tax time prep and all that. But it can go so much deeper to, you know, like I said, I do a lot of stuff with like catalogs. So, you know, track, pulling, really making a sheet of what is my catalog? Where is it registered? Is sound exchange? Am I collecting sound exchange? Am I collecting this? Am I collecting that? Cross-checking it all, seeing what's missing. Oh, we need to register this on sound exchange. Let's do that. I always say, and I think I'm unique because I don't know a lot of business managers. So I don't really know what that job description is other than the textbook job description. So I always kind of say I'm a hybrid between a business manager, a bookkeeper, and an artist manager, because I do a lot of things that a manager would typically do, even though I'm not a manager to those people. But sometimes I'll say like, your manager should be doing this, but I do it anyway. I mean, I'm here to make everybody happy and, you know, help, help as much as I can. That's so great. I'm a business manager too, but I come from the tax side. So I've been filing taxes just so the listeners can kind of understand that Chloe and I work in the same space, but we're kind of like two sides of a bridge. So Chloe is the person who is collecting all the money, making sure that everything's flowing properly, getting it all ready for tax time. And then I'm the one who's putting it on the tax return and helping people pay estimates and you know, making sure that we're all squared away with the IRS. And so there's a lot of stuff that you do as a business manager that I don't do. And I think that's so interesting. So I want to talk for a minute about the cataloging, because that's something that I, in all of my, you know, 14 years of filing taxes now, I've never actually had to do that. And I'm so curious. So how did you first, in the first place, figure out where everybody had to be registered because there's so many different places. And like, was that trial and error or did you have somebody guiding you through that? I will disclaimer all of this and say, I do not know everything. And and cataloging (laughs) is like every day I could learn something because there's so much that's so complicated. So complicated. I mean, it is insane. So I definitely do not know everything. I still come across stuff that I'm like, I don't know, like I'll ask someone. So, but yes. So because I, you know, the family business vibe is our family dinners. We're talking about music, even Mm -hmm. before I was in it, you know, we're still talking about my dad's new project or the new songs he's written. So I've heard all of these buzzwords, you know, publishing catalog titles, you know, ISRC codes, whatever. Like I've heard all of those things along the way. So that helped because hearing those words for the first time is very confusing a lot of the time, but it started originally with, you know, I think and I'm sure you know, is catalog sales are really big right now. They started about maybe two years ago, it seems like now, where it was just, it's trendy. It's trendy to sell your catalog. Everybody's doing it. The news article, I just saw Motley Crue just sold for like 150 million. Um, So catalog, the word catalog has become more common. People are more concerned about where their catalogs are, where they're at as far as how they're registered. I have background knowledge from really just managing my dad and knowing like, okay, well, we need to be with the PRO. I was a part of a lot of the sound exchange movement when that was becoming a thing. And everyone was like, what sound exchange is this a new thing? And what's all this money I should be collecting? And, yeah. and then having to go back and chase artists who were collecting that weren't paying out producers, you know, all the, I was really deep in that too. So I knew sound exchange was obviously a thing. And then, you know, just kind of learned, picked it up along the way. Luckily, because I've managed him and I've handled his finances since since, you know, the last eight or nine years, I've seen all those statements come in. 
So I'm like, okay, we got cobalt, like that's this. And then like, you got sound exchange and that's this. And, and then, you know, I go, okay, well, what are the other companies other than cobalt that do this? And then, you know, I find out what those companies are. So I kind of know that umbrella. And so what I generally do for a lot of my clients, now that it's becoming popular, people are looking at starting to sell their catalogs or prep it for sale in the future. It's a conversation now, you know, I go through and I cross-check all those statements or I'll, I pull the catalogs from like the logins or whatever, not the statements, but, you know, I pull all those titles and make sure they're everywhere they need to be. And, you know, I, I really just pick up the information as I go, I have no education. I don't know what I'm doing. It's amazing. <laughs> I, I, that, I think that's such an incredible, like get up and go kind of like attitude and spirit that you have to just. Oh, and I use my resources. So I'm not afraid to ask for help. I'm not afraid to say, I don't know. And I'll find out. I don't guess unless I'm just wrong. I mean, but I'm not guessing. I think I'm right, but I use my resources. So I call my accountants. I have a great relationship with them. They know a lot about that because they do accounting for musicians. So they'll sometimes know about that. I have a fantastic relationship with my lawyer. I call my lawyer all the time because he sees all of that. He sees all of those contracts and he knows how that flow of money is and where things are and stuff, as well as knows who to chase. A lot of time has the connections I need to contact people and stuff too. So I'm not afraid to ask for help. So if you have, even though they're like an independent team, like I'm not necessarily paying them to consult with them. You know, they're really mentors to me and just, you know, my lifelines in a way, but it's good to have those people around because you surround yourself with people that know more than you because mm-hmm. <laughs> they'll be helpful one day. And hopefully, you know, a little more than them on something, then you can return the favor one day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's good. Really good advice. So catalog sales, just to kind of like clarify for anybody who might not know what that means. When you sell your catalog, what exactly are you selling? It can be one of a couple different ways. Uh, what we're seeing right now, com- most commonly is everything. So the master like the master on it and, and like the mechanical side of it. So the thing that started this trendiness of it is there usually you put together your catalog for the last three years, you put together all the money that you've made from that. So from every Avenue royalties, publishing, stat exchange, performance royalties, everything into like a big spreadsheet for the last three years. And then you take that average, that one year average between from that time frame, and companies are offering generally like 12 to 18 times that to buy it. So, you know, so it's, I mean, I mean, essentially though, you're getting 18 years up front and you're not getting money from it ever again. Right. So, and, and, but I know I have seen some deals and I've had friends and and bands that have sold recently where they're only buying 90% of it. So the, they're still retaining 10% of it, which is Mm -hmm. nice to just still have a little bit of, you know, income still coming in. But yeah, these companies are buying, like I said, it, it used to be, I think the standard, like back in the day before it was trendy was like, eight to 12%. And then it went from like that, from like 12 to 18, I've seen upwards of like 22% or 22 times, sorry, not percent, 22 times that one year average. So it's like I said, it sparked a conversation, whether people want to sell or not, they want to know one, how much their catalog is making them. Cause a lot of time you just get the money in your bank and you don't think about like what songs are actually generating the most money. Now I work a lot more with like songwriters and producers, not so much like the artists. So I don't, I see a very different side of those statements, but, but yeah, it's, it's a job. (laughs) Yeah. That the songwriters and producers are who this podcast is like geared toward in the first place and who a lot of our listeners are. We do of course have a lot of artists and bands, but that's really helpful. I think information. So you said you're selling it and then 
you're not getting it anymore. What is, does that mean anything for what you make in the future? It's so sold. the only thing you're making in the future is anything new, anything new. Yeah. Anything so that's not creating. So I find, and you'll probably see this trend when you look through like those news articles, like sometimes I'll just type in the Google, like catalog sale December, and I'll see all of the articles that are like so-and-so sold, so-and-so sold. The rule of thumb is, you know, obviously you don't want to sell if you're still going to make a ton of money off that music. I find a lot of the people who are selling are towards the ends of their careers. They Uh. say generally, if you're about 50, it might be a good time to sell because if you're getting a 10 even if you get a 15 times multiple, you're basically getting 15 years up front. So if you're 50, you're getting up to 65 years of age, you know, and maybe yeah. you're at a peak in your career. So that way those number that average is a lot higher than, especially with like, and again, I deal with a lot of rock and stuff, you know, yeah. rock really tapers, rock, rock tapers down after a while and stuff. So there is kind of a sweet spot time to sell. I wouldn't recommend a 25 year old selling because they probably have lots of life left in them. And, you know, as they create more music, people are going to listen to their back catalog. So you're Mm -hmm. still going to make money on those titles. But when you're 50, 60, 70, you know, that's when, yeah, people are going to listen to music, but why not take the 20 years up front or the 18 years up front and live your best retirement life? And, you know, you got the money, you know, and if it's going to taper, you've got probably the most you're ever going to get Mm. um, because it'll just kind of taper down over time. I love thinking about it like that, that I think that's so important, especially if you were living like the rock and roll lifestyle when you were younger and you didn't necessarily start a 401k or put anything aside for an IRA. And, you know, you're getting to be 50, 60, 70, and you're like, wait a minute, what's going to happen next? You know, I haven't had a 401k with compounding interest for the last 40 years. So am I going to be living off my royalties? Am I going to have to tour until I'm 80? Like what's happening here? You know, because of that, it sparked that conversation in general. So even younger people are saying, Hey, I need help getting this organized because they just want to be organized. And if there's one thing about the music business is there are errors everywhere and you have to find them yourself. No one is going to come to you and say, Hey, we were wrong the way we calculated this. Here's the money (laughs) we owe you. Like you have to be like, Hey, you did this wrong. You need owe me money. Like, so, you know, when I've been doing these, even for younger people, I found registrations are wrong. I've found songwriting splits are wrong and it's created a new chase of, Hey, this is incorrect. Like this needs to be adjusted, you know, or whatever, or maybe recoupable is wrong. Cause we happen to look closer at the statement or a percentage that's being paid from a label is wrong. And again, they're not going to come to you. It's very rare that they're going to come to you and be like, Oh, our bad. Here's some more money. Yeah. You know? So, so it's kind of just like, and again, with COVID, I mean, I could talk about the whole impact of COVID all day long, but that's not what this is about necessarily. But people were sitting around going, where's my stuff? Like, where's my money? Where is it coming from? How can I make more money? How can I make money from home? Should I be doing lessons? Should I set up a ebook? Should I, you know, all of these random things that were coming into play. So people were sitting around going, where's my catalog? What does it look like? I don't necessarily want to sell it, but like, is it right? (laughs) You know, like if I wanted to. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. COVID was, was a time. Yeah. Yeah. Time for reflection and everybody, especially in music, because people weren't distracted by touring. Everyone was sitting around going, let me look at all of this stuff a little closer. I got so many clients. I mean, I'm sure, you know, from the financial side of it, so many people asking questions and that didn't realize that I had so many clients who dug deeper into their current business managers, realizing they weren't doing a good job. I've had people come to me, you know, 
realizing that labels weren't paying them for years, but they never noticed because they're busy. They're making yeah. music. They don't have time to check every statement and make sure they've gotten paid on every title. And, you know, yeah. 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 Like it's so amazing that you exist to help people with that. And I know one of the things that you and I have talked about a lot is how we can encourage more people to do what we do. And I, you know, it's interesting. I'm sure you've heard me say this somewhere that like our job didn't really exist like eight, nine, 10 years ago because the internet wasn't in the place where DIY musicians were actually making any money. So you were either getting paid in cash because you were a DIY musician or you were able to track everything easily, you know, or you were signed and you just, when you got an advance, you got a business manager, you got a day-to-day manager. And there was like a whole team of people that came along with that record deal that were ready to help you figure all this stuff out. But then Spotify happened and Kickstarter happened and Patreon happened and DistroKid happened. And all of a sudden this whole middle class of musicians is responsible for collecting their own money. And for anybody who's, I don't know, 35 and older, this is a major departure from how we were originally trained. And it's like, we had to start all over again. And then for people who are like 50 and older, this is like completely foreign territory, you know? And so I want to talk for a minute about like, how, if, if someone's listening to this and they think that they're a money-minded individual and they love music, how can they start helping independent musicians, DIY musicians organize all this stuff and start to make sense of it without going back to school and getting an accounting degree and, you know, all the stuff that we've already talked about is like not an option really. Well, they can call me because I'm hiring <laughs> and they can work for me and learn it. No. Um, um, you know, it's like anything else. You just have to do it. You have to go work somewhere or work for someone or do it yourself or take YouTube tutorials or QuickBooks has amazing training videos. Like you just have to start doing it and you have to start learning and either learn from mistakes or um, learn as you go. I mean, you for any kind of like proactive type role where you're not like just clocking in and out and going home you need to be proactive and you need to learn that stuff like like I said I learned it from my accountants from just I just learned it from someone else essentially like how to at least at least how to do the bookkeeping side and then from that point that I'm looking at breaking that down further and so the more you know you know the better but I would find if I was doing this from scratch right now I would find a friend who's in a band that has is generating income because you can't do this with no money. Like you need to track something. So I'd find a friend or a band and I would offer to do it for free. And I would say, and I do that a lot now. I still do that now, 10 years later, I still do work for free because I chalk it up as education. So I would go find a friend or yourself if it's yourself too, but, and say, I will be your, your interim business manager for free for a period of time while I learn how to do this, at least at this capacity And then, you know, once I feel like my value is there and I've got the hang of it, I'd like to be paid, you know, and then just keep doing that and just keep, you know, up leveling up each time you do that. Like I said, I still do free work now. Pink Noise was born on free work (laughs) because I went, I want to learn, I want to see someone else because I've only ever seen, you know, my dad's books, the studio's books, you know, all these like people close to me. I want to see someone else's books. So I'm like, Hey, I'll do your books. Like I want to see what that looks like, you know, for someone else. And that's when I learned that 
everyone's the same. It's just a little bit different. Like, you know, yeah. the general theme is the same. So I was like, well, I can do this guy's books. Let me try someone else. Let me see your books. You know, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I know it sucks to do free work and we live in a time where people shouldn't be working for free. But I do think instead of going to school for four years and paying 60 grand, you know, work for a couple of months and get the hang of someone's books, put your friend's band into QuickBooks and start messing with their, you know, their bank accounts and their income and their expenses. And then again, once you see, oh, they got money from DistroKid. Oh, well, can I get your DistroKid login so I can look at what that money really means and where did that money come from? And, you know. I think you just have to do it and you just have to sometimes take, make sacrifices that you're not going to go get a job somewhere making 70 grand a year off the hop with no experience. You have to just like said, start doing it free. I also started by doing my own books, you know, I yeah. my own books and QuickBooks. And, so then I could play. Cause then I'm not hurting anybody's stuff. I'm like, okay, what does this do? Like what's this feature do, you know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, it could, it could experiment, but you know, it's, it's really, it's really a mind of being proactive, reading, Googling stuff, talking to your friends who might be doing it, talking to you or me about doing it. I could talk the boring stuff all day long. So call me, I'll tell you about it. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, it, it, but I do find that you have to want to do it. And that's the, I, I've mentioned this with my hiring practices is that I don't want someone who is looking for a job. I want someone who wants to do this, even if they don't know they want to do it yet, but they're like interested interest is enough to want to do it. Yeah. I think there's a whole collection of accounting majors who like doing accounting, but don't want to be corporate accountants. They want to have some passion behind what they're doing. I firmly believe that, you know, like I'm really close to University of Michigan and it has a great business school. And I've noticed that there are people coming to the, you know, music business panels and workshops and stuff who are like, yeah, I'm an accounting major mm -hmm. and I go to shows every other day and I want to try to figure out how to make this work. But then they hear, oh, but the music business has no money. And <laughs> I'm like, that's not true. That's true. <laughs> no, it's you not the money. You got to find the money. <laughs> yeah. There, the money exists. You just have to go look for it because nobody's just handing it to you. I just learned something this week. And if anyone is listening to this, they'll get a kick out of this. And I'm no expert. So like I, I only Googled a couple articles, so I may not have all the facts. Do you know what black box money is? Yes, I do. But you I tell just everybody learned what that was this week. Yeah. Yeah. Tell and everybody. I learned because I got a statement and I saw this line item called black box. <laughs> and I was like, what is this? Because it was a weird number. It wasn't like a, an even number, like a sink would be if it was like a show name or, you know, whatever, like it, it caught my attention. And mm -hmm. so I Googled it and I found out, and again, I'm, you may know more than me because I'm just learning about this, but it's essentially uh, a bunch of money that went uncollected because they either couldn't find the people that needed to be paid, registrations were wrong, paperwork was illegible, whatever the case is, all of this uncollected money sat somewhere and they distribute it proportionately to everybody. So yeah. everybody gets a portion of it. I think it's proportionate to like how much they generally bring in. So sure, like if sure, you yeah. bring in a thousand dollars, you may only get 10 bucks, but if you bring in 2 million, you might get 15 grand of it or whatever. Like, and that's, that's all I know, but I know that it happened because all yeah. my clients started, I started seeing black box line items on their publishing statements and I had no idea that was a thing. Yeah. I actually, I uh, was just, just editing a podcast that's going to come out in a couple of days. And we were talking about black box money because you can, you can put your music up on the internet. You can distribute your music anywhere without publishing it. 
And so people skip it because it's an extra cost and extra trouble, but then they don't get those royalties. They go into the black box. And so if you put your music up on Bandcamp, or if you did CD baby, but you skipped the publishing part, you skipped pro, you know, there's a whole bunch of ways to skip publishing and YouTube, just putting your music up on YouTube is not publishing it. And then when all the organizations that are sitting on that money, when they go to distribute it, yeah, they portion it out specifically to who's supposed to get it. And then they have this leftover chunk that like legally they have to get rid of. And so they're like, well, we don't know who this belongs to. We don't know where this came from. So everybody gets money. (laughs) Yeah. 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 But if you're not publishing your music through the proper channels, you are not entitled to that. And it was a lot like this distribution that went out the article that I saw from like a week, a couple weeks ago, whatever it was, it's like 435 million or something like that. Like it was a lot of money that got kicked back to everybody proportionately that if you think about it, if I skipped that publishing box, I might've been owed much more than I actually ended up getting from that, you know, because I didn't do it right. Don't skip steps like everyone's getting your money (laughs) right right and I do think that there's this grouping of hobby musicians who haven't decided that they want to become professionals for whatever reason and they're like I'm never going to do that I'm never going to be a professional musician I'm never going to go down that road but like if if you want to be a professional musician or professional songwriter, professional producer, even a featured vocalist as like, that's, you know, the occupation that you're writing on your tax return is musician or independent artist, then it's your responsibility to publish your work. It's just part of it. Like you have to just accept it as a fact, you know, like you have to put a stamp on a letter when you mail it and you have to publish your songs. Otherwise you're not doing what you need to do yeah it's it was crazy I'd like I was like what (laughs) thing (laughs) yeah yeah the music business is wild like that um you know I I've done a lot of research about the history of copyright law and sheet music and how all these processes and standards were even like implemented in the first place and we're just hacking it together as different technologies are put into play. And that's, it's like not really the best system for, you know, getting people paid because like copyright law was written in the 1800s to cover player pianos. And it was only updated in like 1976 because of recordings. And I even just saw on Instagram yesterday, comedians haven't been publishing their work, so to speak. And so all these comedians are suing Spotify because they want publishing royalties on the jokes that they tell. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Is that a business idea? Is this going to branch off into comedy? Oh, I'll send you the post and I'll connect you with the lawyer that posted it because he's pretty bright. Yeah. That's actually a pretty good idea. There's a lot of comedians in Vegas, right? 
Yeah, I've actually just been uh, meeting some lately. I've, I've become a bit of a, I wouldn't say, a, I wouldn't even say a comedian groupie by any means, but I never knew a real comedian in person and I've met one who knows everybody apparently. So it's been a fun little like experience, just kind of getting more into that world and like hearing the stories. And it's, it's very similar to the music. I mean, it's entertainment in the end, but yeah. it's very similar, very similar vibes for sure there. I think it would be an easy transition for like an artist manager to be like a comedian. I don't know, I guess is it agent or a, is it a manager or like a business manager for musicians to be a business manager for mm-hmm. in the same realm it's very similar mm-hmm. yeah. let's talk about you for a minute I want to know what you listen to what have you been listening to lately oh I'm a boring listener <laughs> that's okay I, I mean, you know I go through phases I, yeah, I think like everybody you go through phases sometimes you you listen, I listen to top 40 sometimes, or like, I like the, the TikTok playlist on Spotify. So it's like all oh, the yeah. popular TikTok songs. But then sometimes I go through a phase where I want to listen to the stuff I listened to when I was a teenager. You know, it's, it's all different. What was that? What did you listen to when you were a teenager? I was a little emo pop punk kid. Nice. So, you know, the 303 and oh yeah, 303 was actually on my Spotify this year for like a top artist. So I did go through that phase this year again, you know, the Cobra Starship and like boys like girls and you know, the that kind of realm so I'll go through that I listen to a lot of rock and metal I like more like new metal you know where it's a little more like a little more bass a little, mm. little more groovy I will say than like like classic rock like a 90 or any like an 80s classic rock yeah um again top 40 and rap gangster rap that's, yeah that's, that's it for me I'm trying to think this year if there's anyone in particular I have to I'm a super fan I've never been a super fan in my life where I felt like I've been like a super connection to a, a band. I'm a super fan of Broken Love. Oh, I don't know them. They are out of Toronto and New York. Okay. Um, love them. They're not super huge. I think they're signed to Spine Farm as of like last year, but they're not super huge. I've been watching them for a long time. I still watch them. I'm a total creep. I totally creep on them. I would love to manage them. I've put out my feelers. They have a manager, but I like, I've even emailed her and been like, I'll help you like uh, get me in there. Like, because I'm so passionate about them. And I feel with management, you have to be passionate about the artists you're managing. You can't just manage people to manage people. Like you have, you have to really want, you have to be able to sell it and you can't sell it if you're not authentic about it. So yeah, I love them. And I listen to them on and off throughout the year. They're more like rock, but they're, he's young. He's like 19 and he's got the voice of an angel. I mean, I don't even know, but yeah. And then like, so I listen to gangster rap on my, while I'm working usually, cause that keeps me, keeps my energy levels high. Like that's 90s, amazing. 80s, 90s gangster rap. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah. I just did a episode of essential songs and it caused me to go back through all of the rap songs that I listened to mm-hmm. in the nineties. And that was fun. That was yeah. really fun. Like going back through all that old notorious B.I.G., Nas, yeah, you know, even like the Fugees, and I, I started to dive into like a tribe called Quest, and that <laughs> first Black Eyed Peas yeah. album, you know, all that. I have a couple like '90s playlists on my Spotify too that I like. That like more like '90s pop, like the Christina Aguilera's. And oh Jimmy yeah. And, like, <laughs> I really, I usually try to listen to music that keeps me pumped up because I'm usually tired. So it's like <laughs> I got to get something that I'm like, all right, let's go. Like we got this. Yeah. <laughs> Are you going to any concerts these days? Have you like gone back into that world? Um, I haven't yet. I want to. I'm going to Seattle next week. This is next week, meaning like December 17th because it's coming out in January. But um, yeah. I'm going to Seattle to see Garage Trois, which is a jazz oh, yeah. trio that Stanton is in. I'm going to go meet him. I haven't met him yet. Oh, yay. So I'm excited. So I'm going to go see him. That'll be my first concert. 
post COVID actually. That's exciting. It's a small venue. It's not crazy, but yeah, I'd like to, I'd really like to, I I'm triple vaxxed. So I feel a little better about it, but you know, Adele just announced a Vegas residency. (laughs) I heard that. I thought about you. Yeah. I'll I'll be coming to visit you. (laughs) I was looking at tickets and I'm, I'm unfortunately being in the music industry. I'm a bougie concert goer. Um, I like VIP and I like a table and a chair. <laughs> I don't like to be in general admission. Me too. And I've been foiled by artists who comp tickets and they get me those things. So now me like me to buy tickets. I don't buy tickets often to concerts, but when I do, I'm like, I need a seat and a table and like, and Adele yeah. is not going to be that concert. I'll be in the nosebleeds at the very back <laughs> with binoculars. Like, <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. I'm the exact same way. It's, you know, tough these days because there's no comp tickets right now. And that's totally fine. I don't like I want them. I've been, yeah, yeah. Them and I'm like, uh, uh-uh, let me pay, let me pay. Yeah. Like, you can give me like VIP comp so I can come see you backstage or something. Exactly. But I'm still a ticket. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. I got backstage to Lollapalooza in 2010. And then I just like literally never went back because yeah. I was like, ah, I just, I can't, you know, like, yeah. unless I get backstage again, cause it was just so nice. Like the private bathrooms and everything how I feel you know? about movie theaters now too that we have one of those like <laughs> recliner movie theaters yeah. and I'm like I can't go to a regular I can't sit in a seat now I have I need a recliner when I go to a movie <laughs> yeah have, have you seen any good movies lately I haven't I hardly I hardly watched any movies I've caught up on lots of shows or I've rewatched shows that I missed like Desperate Housewives I forgot how good oh yeah 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 I rewatched that recently but no I haven't really been watching any movies or I haven't got I haven't gone to movies since COVID either me either if I'm going to go out, I'm, I'm going on an airplane somewhere or I'm going to a show. I, I, if I'm going to risk, risk my health, I'm going to make sure it's worth the risk and I'll watch a movie from home. <laughs> it's like, it's become go big or stay home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, okay, what is worth getting COVID? Is this worth it? Yeah, it's worth it. I'll go to that. Yeah. I think the largest thing I went to, I did Dave Chappelle. Nice. Uh, so, which was a lot. I've gone to a couple hockey games here too. So that's a lot. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We're big hockey fans, but we haven't gone to a game this year. Yeah. So we're in Detroit. So we have the Red Wings and actually my husband really likes that Vegas team. Yeah. I love it. And Stanton Moore. Stanton Moore is my husband's favorite drummer. I have to mention that just in case you're Stanton, if you're listening, (laughs) you're a friggin' beast and we love you. So that was a a referral from my accountants and they, he needed someone and they went, Hey, you should talk to Chloe. And I adore him. He's amazing. And he's such a good person. Yeah. and And he's an amazing musician and stuff. And I just, he's family. I, I consider him family at this point. I'd like do zoom calls with him and his wife. And we, um, you know, I'm, I'm, he's a little gem in the music industry for sure. I love that. He like, we have a bunch of mutual friends and everything I know about him is he's so generous. He is mm-hmm. constantly giving, you know, giving to Tipitina's he, my husband did a drum workshop with him that he like took time out of his festival schedule to, you know, go off in this barn or whatever and do this drum session. And like, he's everything he posts about and writes about is like, give, give, give. And I just think that's and he's so cool. Like, that and, like, it's not a, it's not an act. Like he, is, <laughs> if anything, I'm the, I'm the hard, I'm the tough one. And I'm like, okay, well, like maybe you shouldn't do that. You know? <laughs> um, yeah. He, he is like, he is so great. He's so great. Have you seen Galactic yet? No, but they are playing in February in Vegas. So I'm going to go see them when they're here, I think too. That's great. I'm pretty sure I've seen them at that house of blues. 
in yeah, Vegas. Yeah, Brooklyn Bowl this year. I think well, they've been doing Brooklyn Bowl the last couple of years. But yeah, I just saw they were released a show. I think it's on like the, it might even be on Valentine's Day or something. Nice. Somewhere sometime in February. So that's my plan this year is I'm going to go around the country and go meet my clients because I, I haven't met anybody. Wow. I've, I know like three of my clients in person. So I'd like to make the rounds. Yeah. But it's a testament to your ability to create relationships that they're trusting you with their money when they haven't been in a room with you physically. And I have some clients like that too, you know, like it's easier with zoom, but you have such a bright energy and, um, yeah, yeah, you're welcome. And I, I just love talking to you. I think you're awesome. I I appreciate that. Like, I I think that's how it is with my clients. I mean, we, that's why I say like, I don't know enough business managers to know what like the norm is and how people, what they do for work or like how they treat their clients. If it's, I'm probably way too close with my clients. I'm probably talk to them too often. I always say like 40% of my job is like, like, I'm like their psychologist, you know, a lot of clients will call me and, you know, even just to run ideas past me and business. I mean, they're friends in the end too, in in a sense. So like I said, I don't know if that's normal. I have no concept of what normal business managers are. I just do what I do and seems to stick. So I think that there's no rules. There's no rules anymore. And in my experience working with like a lot of CPAs, you are doing it right because musicians and creatives in general don't gel with the traditional quote unquote buttoned up stiff suit and tie business manager that schedules you between nine and five. And that's, yeah, yeah, no, I I agree. Yeah. Yeah, It just doesn't really, it doesn't really gel. And so what I've noticed is that a lot of times musicians will just skip it, you know, they're just like, Oh, well, I don't want to work with somebody like that. So I'll just do it myself. But then they like, don't actually do it, you know? And then they'll like call me and say, I have this big IRS bill. What do I do? something terrible has happened. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so I'm, you know, I'm trying to like guide people toward being proactive with their finances as, as opposed to getting a big sink and getting a hundred thousand dollar check and then not knowing what to do with it. Not even having an LLC yet, you know, And that's the problem is like so many people wait until that happens before they do something. And like, before they set up those things, they, they wait, they go, I'm not making enough money to do anything. So I'm just not going to worry about it. And then something happens. And when you're not set up properly, when those big things happen, that can be really detrimental and you could potentially not be collecting all your money. Um, I see that all the time and you don't know when that's going to happen. You don't, you could have uh, 300 songs out that are making you pennies And then one song gets, like you said, that big sync or that car commercial. And then all of a sudden you've blown up and you're not ready for that, that growth and stuff. And so it is important to get those things in order early and be ready and have, even if you don't want to pay the people yet, make the relationship so that if it happens, you have your resources ready and stuff too. But yeah, it, it, sometimes it can happen really fast and you may not even realize you may release a song thinking, oh, this is just another song on my album. It'll, it'll do okay. But like, that ends up being the biggest song you've ever done. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, you need to be ready for that kind of stuff. Do you think it's like a mental block where musicians maybe feel like they, like they haven't made it or they're not real, real quote unquote, until they get that thing. And then we're, we're a generation of imposter syndrome. I is mean, it, is that is like, it's a kind of, this, this is a new thought for me. 
that is just occurring to me for the very first time in this moment, but like, how can we help humans? So we're all just humans who are like trying to do our best, you know, we're just trying to live a happy life. Right. So how do we help humans plan for success? Yeah, it's hard. I think a lot of it is that I think you're right on the right track of it's a mental block of like, well, I'm going to put this album out and it's like, it's going to do good, but like, it's not going to be the next Rihanna. So like, I'm not going to worry about these things right now. Like it's not Rihanna. I think with the, the switch from these labels taking and signing your life away and that, that mind switch of people going, well, I can do this on my own and I can keep my masters. And like, how do I do that? That shift is happening. But I think a lot of it happens or has to do with, you know, you don't know, like you, you can't, you can't put those that you can't lay that foundation if you don't know how to lay that foundation. And so it gets ignored or they may not even know they have to do it. They just throw it up on distro kid, like you said, and, and they go, I don't know what publishing is. I'm not paying an extra $6 for that. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. like I don't have the money to, to pay that $6 and I don't know what that money means. Will I make that money back? I don't know. So I, it's hard. It's like, you want to educate people, but you can't educate people that don't want to learn. And so that's a hard, a hard part too. I think for, as far as like trying to target the most people at once, it's so important to have, you know, those, those panels at those music conventions, that's where people are going South by Southwest, you know, trying to hit those kinds of things and having those companies, you know, advocate for that, you know, it'd be nice if there was like, a nonprofit to a degree that helped with that, that you could have, you know, a lounge at South by Southwest sponsored by blah, blah, blah. And they teach you about some of these things, or at least expose you to those words, you know, like publishing and, you Mm -hmm. know, setting up your bookkeeping and stuff. But I think it's just a combination of all that. I think, I think, you know, again, you can't, you can't do what you don't know. So if they don't know, if artists don't know how to do those things and they don't know what to search or what to Google to figure it out, it's hard. Yeah. We should start that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We should uh, start with that nonprofit that you were just talking about. That's a, actually a really good idea. That's I, I joke all the time about starting a nonprofit record label. <laughs> because <laughs> it's so like there's record labels are a blessing and a curse. And, you know, it's, I just think of all the things that I would do differently if I could do it as a nonprofit, but obviously I, I still need to pay my bills and like, you know, it's, it's just, it's a hard thing. I mean, it's hard to do charity and, or even to do those, that kind of stuff and still, you know, pay your bills and not, I can't not yeah. work, you know, but yeah, yeah. I think about all the time because I talk to so many artists who get burned by labels. I, I low key call pink noise, a small potatoes firm, because I find that I end up with these clients and I'm not talking about my current roster necessarily, but I end up with these clients that came from large firms that were neglected because they were the small potatoes at that firm. And I see that with labels a lot where they come from. I see artists that get signed to these major labels and then they get neglected because they're not Ariana Grande and they're not making yeah. them all the money. So they get neglected and then they're the small potatoes and then they're held hostage by the label Yeah, <laughs> because they own everything and stuff. So it's hard. I mean, it's, I, I could start small potatoes charity and you know take care of all those artists that they're valuable they're not not valuable but they're getting neglected right 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 yeah that word value keeps coming up in all the interviews that I'm doing on this podcast too because it's so hard to put monetary number on the value that music brings to people Mm. because it's so emotional and important to like our well-being as the human race And how do you even put 
a dollar sign on the feeling that a good song gives you when you're having a rough day and it makes you feel better. Like, what was that worth? You know, we can't put, I can't like pay money out of my checking account for that feeling. And it can be, you know, really tough without, without like going through a brand type model where you're like, oh, but this is how many people are seeing it. And this is how many purchases are being driven because your song got, you know, like whatever it could. And it's like, uh, yeah, that the value conversation, I think. I mean, that's where you get into that realm of a, of a good fan. You know, if you have that experience I find whenever I've had those kinds of experiences or I feel extra connected to an artist or whatever, I, I mean, I know that I need to support them somehow. So whether it's buying a ticket to their show, I've bought so many tickets to shows that I don't go to even because (laughs) I don't want to stand in general admission, but I want to support them. Um, You know, so it's like buying a ticket to their show, buying a sweatshirt from their merch shop, you know, if they're doing crowdfunding, donating to the crowdfunding, whatever the case is, I just try to really keep closer eyes on those people that have or those artists or, you know, songwriters, whatever that have really impacted me. And that's the other thing to note. And it's probably a good thing for this podcast is not every song that moves you is just that artist. There's so many people on a song that were part of that process of from the producers to the songwriters. I mean, I was just looking at those Grammy ballots a couple weeks ago for the, and it's like, Some of these, (laughs) the writers are like this long and whether they actually wrote much or they were just present in the room is a conversation. I still low key think (laughs) there's like a hip hop mob mafia of some kind, but, um, but yeah, I mean, there's so many more people. So that's the other thing I find. If you value something, if you hear a song that really moves you, take the couple minutes to Google who was involved in that song. Don't just look at it as the singer, the other musicians, the songwriters, the producers, the engineers, everyone had a piece of that. Yeah. Those are all the people that this podcast exists for specifically. Yeah. It's like the artist is awesome. I love artists. Please. Yeah. Give them credit too. Yeah. But yeah. Like, they they so get their people. credit. <laughs> yeah. But then there's all these other people, like hundreds of people. I have to laugh at that Grammy ballot thing because I looked at Justin Bieber's list and it was like three screenshots long, <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, there had to have been 50 or 60 songwriters on that album. I would love to see that split, like, like actually see the split on who's getting what percentages on that because it is so long. Like it's insane. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. So this has been amazing. I think that you are so bright and a much needed light in the music business. And, um, I'm just kind of wondering what's coming up the pipeline for you. You know, what's next in the world of Chloe Churko? How are you going to take over the world? Ah, I'm going to take over the world. There's a lot of things. I mean, it's a second podcast, this whole topic. I don't even (laughs) share my secrets. So one thing that is popular right now is direct licensing agreements. And again, I'm not super knowledgeable on all this stuff yet, but for example, Sirius XM having a direct deal with an artist or a label. So when they play their songs, they're not going through sound exchange. They're going to the label directly. And that's really cool. I think that's a good thing. However, when you go not through sound exchange, you need to make sure you account to everyone properly. Right. And I think we're entering as direct licensing deals become uh, more popular. I think we're entering a new era of chasing money because you may not realize you're not getting that money on sound exchange anymore. And you may not realize that, that as say, as a producer, 
that artist has a direct licensing deal and you need to go get that money from the artist or the label or whoever is accounting to you. I think that's going to be a really big project in the coming year or two years of people going, what, why is my sound exchange so low all of a sudden? And then you're like, oh, well, they probably signed a direct licensing deal and you need to go back to them and chase that money. I think that's going to be a big thing. I think that's going to be a big, almost its own entity of a business that I might have to start soon. As far as Pink Noise goes, I just kind of was looking at my books and I've quadrupled last year as far as like, you know, clients and stuff goes. So congrats. um, That's amazing. I expect that it'll be a very growing year into the, into the next year as well. I have a couple really big clients coming up that I have not talked about yet that have signed with me recently. And again, neglected people that are valuable and they need attention. And, you know, it's not the side musician that released one song one day that obviously you may not need all the accounting that someone needs who is a bit bigger. You know, it's, I think it's going to be a big, a big year for Pink Noise. A lot of people, catalog sales are still going on. There'll be lots more of those, I'm sure. And yeah, a lot of money to be collected and a lot of, a lot of things to do. I think I'm expecting it to be a really monumental year for, for me. I graduate this year, so I'll be able to have more time to do these things too. So Yay. Um, yeah, I think it's going to, I think it's going to be good, but I, I do see, and I'll say this, if anyone is listening to this, you need to watch out. If you're a, a producer or you're getting sound exchange money from an artist, if you notice a drop, they probably just signed a direct licensing deal and you need to go find them. Good advice. Very, <laughs> very good advice. Um, just one last question. Yeah. What do you think about cryptocurrency? Oh my God. Do you ask everybody this? <laughs> no. That's another podcast. <laughs> no, uh, you just got me thinking because direct license, you were, th- you were saying you have to go chase that money. And I was thinking, well, they could just use a ledger for it. And then I was like, oh, I wonder what she thinks about crypto. I'm a, I'm a crypto person. Yeah. I, I'm not hardcore, but I'm, you know, I have, I hold crypto to the moon. Here we go. You know, I've been exposed to it for many years. I, I, we actually had a miner at one point in time, we were mining it back in probably 2011. So we, you know, we're a family of crypto actually, <laughs> while you say this, there's a cryptocurrency convention that my dad is at right now. Here oh, nice. He's at a four day crypto convention here. He's really involved in it. So that's why I, we have, we talk about it lots. I know it's going on. I, I don't hold too much of it because I'm just not I'm a gambler in a sense, but you know, that is a really risky thing. Still a lot of my clients ask me, Oh, I need to like start investing money. Like what should I do? And I'm not a financial advisor and I'm very clear with everybody that I cannot financially advise you. I'm definitely not knowledgeable enough to financially advise you. However, here's some things I do and I will tell them about crypto. Cause I'm, I'm definitely an advocate for it, but I say, don't put crypto, don't put money in crypto you don't have to lose because it is still a gamble at the end of the day, but it's doing well. And I think, I think it's going to be a huge crypto year this year too. I think it's going to be a big year in the next, like, or the next six months, we'll say. And then I think it's going to be like quiet for like three years and then Mm -hmm. it's going to do another big jump again. So I'm going to hold most of it for probably the next five or six years. Yeah. Have you seen a distributed ledger? Have you gone into that world at all? Where I haven't, you know, I was just talking the other day with someone. So again, I, I don't want to waste too much time, but like there was a bunch of crypto lost a couple, several years ago now in Mountain Gox. And it was okay. all the people that like owned a bunch of crypto that they, it was lost in, I don't really understand the, con- like it was lost in the clouds basically. And they had to start retrieving this crypto. And I did see 
a ledger a little bit on who owned how much of what. And it was very interesting to see. I just, the reason we were talking about it, being in a recording studio, because I still work here, the owner, the CEO of Waves plugins owns like a shit ton of crypto. So that was interesting. I haven't looked too hard at it and I don't know if I want to know, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's really common and a lot of people have a lot of it and it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. I'm really curious to, to think about how it could help follow the money for a musician who owns intellectual property yeah, and puts that intellectual property on the exchange, so to speak. And, you know, like if there is a platform where you can listen to music, I don't want to call it a streaming service because I don't want those two things to get confused, but a platform where you can listen to music that is linked back to some kind of crypto fund and it's it's not an nft because it's not exclusive then you can see how many times it was played and you can see who played it and who your top fans are i feel like it if that transparency existed in a way that was user friendly and like readable to the lowest common denominator of people who are interested in this sort of thing I don't know. It's just, it's really interesting to me. But then I started to think about mining. We had a mining computer too for a little while. And I start to think about what it is that we are mining and the algorithms that the computers are figuring out and the data and the value of that data. And that part of it starts to kind of like make my brain feel like it's going to explode. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. then I'm like, oh God, where are we going with this? You know, because like our current economy is based in like things you can hold like yeah. real estate, dirt, gold, and whatever else is worth money. But cryptocurrency is based in data, you know, like, and, and I just kind of wonder like, what's that data actually worth and who's determining it and. At what point are we all going to go, oh, this is actually not worth anything. Yeah, I know. Well, that's why I say it's very scary and don't put money into it. You aren't prepared to lose because, you know, I would, I would not put my life savings into it by any means. Cause I just, I just don't know. I just don't know. It's, yeah. but I, I, if you ask any person, any musician, anyone in the music industry, what is wrong with the industry? I guarantee at least 90% of the answers will be transparency. Yeah. And, and that people aren't transparent enough. The reporting isn't transparent enough. Everything's so freaking complicated. It's not user-friendly, you know, and then, and you're, then you're running it through people who you think you trust, who are not trustworthy. And, you know, it turns, it's just a mess. It's a very corrupt industry. So I think it would be amazing if there was some way you could kind of correlate that in a way where you can, it's like, here's the facts and everyone can see it. Yeah. You know, it's not, you don't have to pay $20,000 for a reporting software that tells you what your sales are because only the highest of the high can afford the sales reporting systems. And, you know, like, yeah, yeah, it would be that, that in itself is a business idea that would probably be a massive thing. If you, there was a way to properly, you know, like you said, like pull all that data and stuff and yeah, somebody's working on it. That's, oh, I'm sure. I'm sure they've been working on it before. Yeah. Before we even thought, thought about it, you know, (laughs) but yeah, it's, it's hard. It's definitely, it's a weird, that's why you need good business managers. And even then not everyone, there's not one person that knows everything. Mm-hmm. There's always more to learn. And as things shift and evolve, you know, like I said, I doubt we were all thinking about direct licensing deals. And I can't imagine how many producers out there don't know about those direct licensing deals and don't realize that 
they're not getting paid anymore. Like they were getting paid, but now they're not because they got a, you know, the band signed deal. So those are all things you have to kind of work with it and evolve with it. Subscribe to a good music business newsletter, news website, which I also find there's a bit of a lack of too, but yeah, like yeah. current events in the music industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you on that. There, there were some, but then they kind of tapered off. Man, I could just talk to you all day. So, <laughs> um, but we have to wrap up. So, is there any way that people can hire you? People who are listening to this, or any way that they can work with you? Anything that yeah. you want to promote? Yeah, by the time you're hearing this, I'll be accepting new clients. I tend to try to accept most of my clients uh, in like the earlier part of the year. That's a mistake I made this year is I accepted new clients in like November and had to like (laughs) redo entire sets of books two months before month end. But yeah, I, I definitely, and I, so the cool thing about Pink Noise is I don't just do a traditional, I'm your business manager and you pay me 5% gross. And like, that's that. I do very much a la carte services as well where I might just help someone with one thing. Maybe they need help with their LLC formation, or maybe they just need very general bookkeeping. I have some clients who do their bookkeeping, but they want me to reconcile it so I can they can make sure they're on the right track and stuff. I do, I create these custom packages from, I'm starting with my first release or I'm starting to just generate money for the first time to I've been doing this for 25 years and I need help maintaining it. So don't be shy with me if you ever need any little things or have small questions because I'm not just some fancy pants in an office making 5% of everybody. (laughs) My plan was to tackle the people who need the help. And most of those people can't afford the 5%, you know? Mm -hmm. So anyways, yes, you can find me at pinknoisemgmt.com is where you can find all the info. And there's a contact sheet on there. There's a Google doc sheet to fill out that gives me a little survey so I can give quotes accordingly. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Chloe Churko and Pink Noise MGMT. Uh, I'm everywhere. And yeah, you, I'm, I'm definitely, I always, I can pretty much always do anything. It's very rare that I reject anything. Even if I'm super busy, a lot of times people just need small stuff. I'm launching this year, which is something I want to talk to you on the side one day, but I'm launching like a business consulting. I don't want to say coaching. I'm not a huge fan of the business coaching words, but like a business consulting side of it as well. Cause some people just need to talk. Like some people just want to talk about business and they want to bounce ideas off of someone else who's knowledgeable, or they just ran into some weird situation or problem that they need to get through. Like, it would be like no different than if you wanted to talk to a lawyer for 15 minutes about a legal issue and you wanted a small, you know, consultation call. I think I'm going to launch something like that because I get a lot of that where like, I don't need help with anything, but I just have a question, you know, like, yeah. so where you can kind of set up some time and chat with me and we can like sit talk about anything, anything music business, and I'm happy to talk. So um, that will probably be launched sometime in early February. Cool. But, but yeah, I'm well, everywhere. Find me anywhere. You call me, text me. I don't care. I'm 24 yeah. seven. <laughs> You're awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. When Songs Mean Business is a production of Steph Belcher Business Management, LLC. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by me, Steph Belcher. 
please make sure to join us in our Facebook group, When Songs Mean Business, and follow us on Instagram at When Songs Mean Business. And as always, thank you to The Dropout for the break music.